Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Ontario government has decided to rescind their decision on provincial cuts to cities, for now, anyway. The Ontario government is also planning on ripping up the agreement with the beer store in order to bring beer and wine to corner stores. And Jody Wilson-Raybald and Jane Philpott have announced they'll both run as independents in the upcoming federal election. Do they stand a chance? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, the Ford government decided that they are going to rescind their decision on provincial cuts to uh, cities for now. Uh, that being the operative phrase there. City officials uh, say that this is only temporary, though, so uh, I'm going to talk about this as a kind of a stay of execution. Joining us to uh, talk about the ramifications and how this is going to impact you and me is Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us again today. Thank you, Bill. Always always a pleasure. Listen, I, <laughs> I know that you had a, a discussion with the Municipal Affairs Minister. I don't, I don't want you to take all the credit for having changed his mind on this, because I mean, there were other <laughs> voices in this. But uh, it's it was gratifying to see that at least they started to listen to reason. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I'm... I'm uh Grateful that they've uh, they've backed up a little bit. We've uh, we've made the the, the issue that uh, consultation and uh, having some collaboration with your municipal partners is very important. And so these surprise announcements coming out of left field and uh, as, you know, as you said in your editorial, uh, you know, aim before you shoot. Uh, you know, they're they're doing it quite the opposite, uh, quite the opposite way around. And uh, you know, they they need to have an understanding and appreciation of the kind of difficulties these. Uh, proposed cuts are are going to make for municipalities so uh, right across the board and for people that uh, depend on our services and for the taxpayers of our community so four percent you know you might have figured out uh, out of a two and a half billion dollar budget is about 80 million dollars that is a massive amount of money coming out of our budgets that uh, i just don't see how that's doable without uh, significant uh, program cuts and without uh, significant layoffs and uh, potentially even tax increases uh, on top of all of that. I mean, this, this is, this, these are huge amounts of money. We have been cutting and saving and finding efficiencies for the better part of 15 years now. Uh, we audit. Uh, we have value for money audits. Uh, we certainly welcome the, uh, the province to, uh, to give us more money and do the audit of the auditors and uh, see if there's any more that we can find in terms of uh, efficiencies. But... Boy, we've been working hard at this. Now, some other municipalities may not be in the same boat, but certainly Hamilton has been uh, leading the way in terms of finding efficiencies. Can there always be a few more dollars to be found? Probably. Uh, $80 million? Not, not even close. Let's, and by the way, I'm glad you clarified that because I saw some of the headlines I saw in, in different uh, publications and online today were suggesting that you know the the government's changed their minds and they're not going to do this. That's not really the t- the case here. They they've put it off for the time being, but you're still under pressure here. Yeah, I mean they're they're saying they're they're not going to do the in year cuts, so not, which is you know reasonable. That's the argument we made already. Is uh, you know we've already passed our budgets. Now you're going to come back and say okay, cut here, there, and and, and you know three other different locations. The cuts that they were proposing beyond the four percent were already in the order of about twenty million dollars. Uh, that's a very difficult thing to do when you've already you know laid out your budget. So the likelihood it would have been, and we did share this with Minister Clark when we met with him through Lumco on Friday, which is the large urban mayor's caucus of Ontario. Uh, in Guelph, we met with him and said, uh, you know, what's likely to happen is that most municipalities can't can't just automatically find this money. They'll they'll do a tax increase in your tax increase, and uh, you know, and label it the uh, 
the, the increase that uh, has been required as a result of provincial uh, provincial cuts. Uh, that didn't sit well with them, I don't think. And then, uh, you know, the whole notion that the polling that's been done recently, you know, certainly suggests that they're out of sync with where, you know, the populace at large is, that these kind of dramatic cuts is not something that they necessarily signed on for. And so, uh, you know, given, putting all of that together, uh, I would say it would give them reason to pause and uh, have more collaboration, get a better sense of what's doable, and uh, and then come forward with some, hopefully, some some agreed to principles and how we were going to achieve uh, you know some of their object- some of their objectives. Well, and that was as you mentioned the point of my blog at eight ten this morning was look at I, I don't think anybody disagrees that okay we have a financial problem here in the province of Ontario, and yes we did elect a new government and said okay go fix this, uh, but uh, you've you've got to they what they do is they roll out policies and then they say oh my god we're getting pushback on this we better consult you consult first. Yeah. Talk to people. Exactly. I mean, you know, you're the guys you know, and, and municipalities all over the province right now that are going to be impacted by this, and you're the ones that are delivering the services. And the province would be well advised to sit down and say, okay, this is our our challenge. Give us some ideas. And and there, there doesn't seem to be dialogue until, until after there's a big pushback. Right, exactly. And so it's it's more like, uh, you know, fly fly something, throw something out there, take a flyer on it, see what kind of response there is, and then, then adjust accordingly, which, uh, you know, to me sounds like a very backwards way of doing this. Now, I know that they're ambitious and they want to move quickly, uh, but you know what, uh, you know, being short-sighted on these issues is not going to help anyone, and, and finding this kind of money is not going to happen without significant service cuts and or, you know, employment uh, reductions. And their their whole mantra has been do this, but don't affect frontline services. Well, you know I, I don't I don't I don't know that we're, that any municipality today is in that position. Uh, we're all pretty close to lean, and uh, you know some of some others have uh, you know worked harder at it than than uh, you know maybe Hamilton or other communities have. But out of necessity, we've had to find efficiencies so we could be able to afford doing some of the infrastructure deficits that we uh, we are currently facing and will continue to face. So any additional money that we found, uh, in, you know, in, in, in through our budgets, we've actually aligned towards uh, extra infrastructure investments that are so so desperately needed. And there's the concern. And, and, and again, I know people get upset when we start drawing analogies between this and, and, and the common sense revolution of the 1990s. But you were there on mm-hmm. council at the time. Yep. Uh, and I was there for the latter part of that. And, and so we saw the impact. Uh, and they got a big pushback from from mayors and obviously from taxpayers here in the province about the announcements they've made this year. And it seems as if what they're doing is exactly what Mike Harris did back then. They're they're handing you the scalpel, Mister Mayor, and say, "Here, you guys go and do it." But this is the this is the margin you have to meet. So, well, in other words, so that way you'll take the heat for it instead of them. Well, I mean that's exactly what's happening here. They're they're downloading and they're forcing municipalities to do the kind of cutting that they're not prepared to do, or to force us to increase taxes that they're they're also not prepared to do. And so it's just passing the buck. Uh, you know, I, I'll give credit to the Harris government. I mean, uh, they they came out with a common sense revolution platform, some hundred recommendations that they were planning on doing, and they set out uh, when they got elected and, and did them. But they they signaled what exactly what they were going to do this government uh, you know really didn't do any of that uh they they said we're we're going to we're going to you know reduce the size of government in a in a very general sense but had no specifics in fact uh, the most recent budget we were all fooled by because it looked like it was relatively benign that they were not uh, you know yet uh, wielding the scalpel and then we find out afterwards through media and others 
that, uh, that uh, you know, the, the details actually indicate some pretty significant uh, reductions in cuts in services, uh, you know, throughout the province. And so uh, this, this whole, you know, try to fix this by, by, through stealth is uh, not going to work. Uh, people are not going to be happy with uh, this kind of approach, and uh, they expect their governments to work together. And so, uh, you know, the, 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 the most closely tied uh, level of government is between the province and the cities uh, in, the, in the province of Ontario and right across the country. We have a better relationship with our federal partners right now in terms of funding, in terms of dialogue, in terms of consultation than, we, than, than we're having with uh, this current provincial government. And so there's something to work on for all of us. Glad to see that they're acknowledging that. And uh, do, are we immune now from any future cuts? Of course not. Uh, we've got some work to do. But, uh, you know, I, I think we want to make sure that the province realizes that this is not an easy road to hoe. And uh, we're not going to avoid, uh, if, if they're determined to go through with this, they're not going to avoid service, service reductions and, uh, and employee, employee reductions as well. Because that, that just one goes hand in hand. You cut off programs. You also cut off staff that, uh, that manage those programs. So well, their whole notion that you can do this without any pain is, uh, is, is a fallacy. Well, and therein lies the problem. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, in 1995, Ontario voters had a choice. I mean, the common sense revolution was out there. And, you know, it, you could either vote for it or didn't. And Ontario voters, the majority of them anyway, said, yeah, yeah. let's give this guy a shot. There was no platform for Doug Ford. And, and, and I guess a lot of people bought into that uh, promise that he made that, that nobody's going to lose their job and it's not going to affect frontline services. Well, that's that's baloney. You know that you can't have those sorts of cuts. And and this is this is still a rather draconian goal that they're attaining here, Mr. Mayor. I mean, they say, uh, and these are the premier's own words that he wants you and every other mayor in this in this province to find four cents out of every dollar uh, savings. Uh, that's going to mean program cuts. That's all there is to it. Exactly, and uh, I hope, hopefully they'll get that message. Uh, you know, they should be aware of that. I know, I know the premier likes to, to claim that the, they saved a billion dollars in Toronto. Uh, you know, that that's just debatable. Uh, you know, I was in Toronto during the uh, the, the Rob Ford years, and uh, you know, every every uh, bureaucrat and politician beyond Mr. Ford uh, all said that that wasn't true. Uh, these are not easy things to achieve. Uh, we have we have been creating the kinds of efficiencies that, that they're talking about for years. Uh, the reality is that uh, we have a, a fiscal structure in the province of Ontario that requires uh, some measure of debt to be able to afford to do uh, the, some of the infrastructure work that we have to do. The question becomes, and any economist will tell you this, how much GDP do you have? How much revenue do you generate to be able to support that debt? And fortunately in Ontario, we're actually in, in pretty darn good shape in terms of the, the economic uh, prosperity that we experience is uh, healthy and robust and there's uh, there's good revenue to be uh, to be had to actually help support the uh, the debt that we we have incurred does that mean that we don't spend any time and effort on on that very issue of reducing that debt of course we do the question is do you do it over a couple of years and you know it sounds like they're they're trying to slay this in a in a year or two or do you take a longer term strategy it's strategically talking about how do we increase our revenues and how do we do? How do we then use that to uh, to reduce the overall debt load that uh, that we're facing? And how do we maintain the kind of important programs that people rely on? And you know, when you're talking about public health and paramedic services, I mean, to, to some of the most basic uh, services that people uh, rely on day to day, cutting in those areas means that, that that programs are going to disappear. Supports for for people in the community that have, have different health issues are not going to be there, and that's just not the kind of society that I think. 
our community and the province of Ontario wants to uh, wants to develop. And so, how do we how do we create that balance between fiscal prudence and uh, and and also at the same time making sure that we create the kind of investments that continue to generate revenues for the future? But to do what the the <laughs> province is suggesting here, Mr. Mayor, that there's a presupposition on their part that there's a lot of fat to cut out of your budget. Uh, but when you look at what they have done, and now they've backtracked on this for a year anyway, it's still coming in 2020. But you look at where they have targeted, uh, are we to assume that they think that we have too many ambulances in the city? Are, they, are we to assume that they don't think we need a public health department here? Because that's that's what they seem to be saying by their pronouncements. Yeah, and, and you know, the fortunate thing is, or the unfortunate thing is, they're not being very specific. And so that's, that's the biggest challenge here. Uh, you know, one day we hear uh, four cents uh, savings, the next day we hear one percent that came out of Minister Clark's uh, mouth during our meeting. <clears throat> and then, uh, you know, and then we're we're hearing you know save pennies on the dollar. Uh, no specifics, no you know clear direction, no uh, no kind of uh, recommendations on where they think uh, their the programs are are being wasteful or not being utilized properly. Uh, you know, so so some guidance from the uh, from the province if this is their plan would be very helpful, and some dialogue in terms of uh, you know how we might be able to to be helpful. Uh, you know, I don't think anyone wants to be at, at war with the province of Ontario. We want to be uh, working together, but we also want to be realistic and tell them what we truly think about, uh, you know, their plan and how that's going to affect frontline services. And you're right. Uh, you know, we, do we do we have too many ambulances? I don't think so. We have, uh, you know, code code reds, and we have, uh, you know, no ambulances available due, due to hospital issues. Uh, it, you know, lack of capacity to admit people into the hospital has these ambulances standing at the at the the, the hospital door, uh, you know, seven or eight at a time, just standing there waiting for uh, somebody to take the patient in so they can get back on the road. So, and times we don't have any ambulances available in our community for you know emergency work at all. And so, you know, making all of those arguments, we can go through all of those details and share with that with the province, and hopefully they'll come out of with a better sense of what's doable and what isn't doable. Well, and and therein lies the concern. Uh, so, in other words, uh, this I know has been framed by many people as a good news story. The fact that you've got a stay of execution, I suppose, is 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 something that that, that we need to embrace and say, well, okay, that's good. But uh, this is going to be a rough couple of years. It is, and I, you know, that's that's not uh, unforeseen. I mean, uh, you know, the moment that uh, you know the the, city, the province at large elected, uh, you know, a, a fiscally conservative government, uh, you know that you're going to be in for some change. But there, you know, there's change in uh, in the liberal governments as well, and NDP governments. Uh, I mean, they're all somewhat different. They all take a bit of a different tack. But the reality is that we're all working for the same taxpayers. Uh, we're all working to provide services. We're all working to be fiscally uh, responsible with the uh, the dollars that we uh, collect and generate. And uh, if given that that that's that's true, then uh, we should all be working together to uh, to find the best path forward uh, for for all of our taxpayers uh, to make sure that the services that they require are going to be there, and at the same time time that we do that in a fiscally responsible way, that we don't waste money, that we uh, spend time uh, looking at how we can create value for money <clears throat> on the projects we do, and, and still maintain uh, good quality of life for our citizens. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberg, uh, lots more to come on this story, Mr. Mayor. I know we'll talk more about this in the days and weeks ahead. Thanks for this today. I'm rooting for the Bruins now, Bill. I've got to be with you on this one now. Well, another, con done, uh, so. another convert. <laughs> Wonderful to hear. Thank you. <laughs> Mayor Fred Eisenberger. <laughs>
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the Ontario government is now planning on ripping up the agreement with the beer store that would allow the sale of beer and wine in corner stores. Now, this is an announcement, of course, that uh, Doug Ford made some weeks ago. And uh, the stumbling block seemed to be the fact that there was a 10-year contract in place with the beer store. And for those who uh, need to be reminded, uh, let's keep in mind the beer store is a private entity. I know that a lot of people think, well, the LCBO is owned by the province and so is the beer store. No, it's not. It's actually run by three major breweries. Uh, so they say, yeah, we're just going to rip it up and move on. Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, uh, joins us to talk about this. Hey, Marvin, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Uh, is it that easy, just rip up a contract and, and go merrily out of your own way? Well, not normally so. And in this specific contract was signed in 2015 by the government of Ontario. Now, granted, it was a liberal government, but it, it doesn't have that little footnote to it. It is the government of Ontario. And it was to cover a 10-year period to the year 2025. I won't try to go into all the details, but there are a couple of key clauses in here. One was that the beer store, owned, as you said, by many breweries, had agreed to invest money into the modernization of their store, something to the tune of $100 million to make them more efficient in a modern age. But also in exchange, they cracked open the door to allowing uh, some distribution of beer and uh, uh, those kinds of spirits in grocery stores, 350 grocery stores to be precise, 450 beer store outlets, but they said, look, we understand you want this, so we'll crack open the door that wide. Now, what does Mr. Uh, Ford want? He wants it available, beer, in all grocery and variety stores. That's 10,000 stores across the province. And so he has announced through a piece of legislation that he wants to dramatically change this. I would suspect the beer store and its owners have a great case to make in front of a court. And that, that, that seems to be the major stumbling block here. Uh, we're going to be talking with the finance minister in just a couple of minutes and try to get some clarification on this. But the estimates we've heard, and, and again, we don't know this for a fact, uh, is it could be upwards of $10 million or more in, in, in penalty fees. And, I mean, where's that money going to come from? Well, exactly. I, I would think they'd be actually very lucky if they could get this for $10 million. I think you're talking about nine figures in the hundreds of millions. I don't know. Some people, some nice people even suggest a billion dollars. I'd have to really read the contract in detail to get that number. But I, I also don't really understand the big motivation here. I do get the understanding that if it's available in 10,000 stores, I, Doug Ford, am delivering convenience to the consumer. Great. But you're not actually going to deliver any more revenue. In other words, we're going to take the existing sales and spread them over the, the stores that you've got. You're not going to get more revenue government from doing this. So, so what is the big need to do this other than giving people convenience? Was this the big issue when you went door-to-door -door during the campaign last year that people wanted beer in the variety stores? I understand the convenience, but on a priority list of 10 items, this has got to be number 37. But as we've talked about in the past, Marvin, there are a number of people lining up on the other side of this and saying, wait a second, you understand what this is going to cause? Convenience may sound great to somebody on a Sunday afternoon that says, "Hey, you know, my brother-in-law just came over. Uh, let's go to the corner store and get some beer." You know, and sit in the backyard. That that sounds like that's a great scenario. Right. But there are people that concern mothers against drunk driving have some concerns about this. Uh, police have weighed in on this too and said, "I'm not so sure this is such a good idea." Uh, have they balanced all this? Have they weighed yeah. all this in this decision? Well, that's that's a very good question. So, Bill, I said the convenience was the big plus. What are the minuses? And and the first one that comes to my mind is not the mother against drunk driving argument, but simply 
simply one of sustainability. Today, for every 100 beer bottles that go out of the beer store, 97 come back, get cleaned, and reused again. This is a model for the world of efficiency and, and talk about sustainability, not hurting our environment. I have been in California where beer is available in grocery stores and variety stores, but nobody takes empties back. They're all just thrown. They're either thrown into the blue bucket or just thrown into the garbage and, and not used a second or third or tenth time as it goes. It's not terribly efficient, and I think that's a concern. Then you raise the other concern. Will this extra accessibility uh, be just as vigilant? Today, with just 450 locations, beer store employees are very, very vigilant about who they sell the product to. They don't sell to minors. They don't sell to intoxicated people, etc. If you suddenly in 10,000 variety stores, perhaps with people earning you know, minimum wage, perhaps younger people in those stores, will they be as vigilant checking? And, and ultimately, I don't think this should be about increasing consumption of beer. I don't think any government wants to say, we want the population to drink more beer. So that's the, those are the downsides to this. There's another one that is rather fascinating, too, and I don't know that it plays a whole lot with a, a, a large segment of the population, but if you want to go to those corner stores, uh, oftentimes those are mom-and-pop businesses run by families. You know, they buy a franchise for whatever the store might be, uh, and, and they might have younger people working in that store. Uh, are they allowed to sell beer? Yeah, that becomes a great question. I think this is like cigarette sales and smart serve, et cetera. There's probably going to be some, uh, or at least there should be, if not in the bill itself, in the execution of the bill, some guidelines as to who's allowed to sell the beer, uh, what kind of skills they need to have to make sure that the person they're selling it to isn't already intoxicated, etc. By the way, in the United States where they do this bill, they shut down around midnight. They say, okay, as of midnight. But the variety store is open 24 hours a day. So what they do is they go back to the cooler that has the beer in it and they put a big honk and lock on it. But I can also tell you down in the United States when people rob beer store, or excuse me, rob the variety store, rob the convenience store, one of the first things they do is smash the glass in the cooler and help themselves with some beer. There seems to be a little more incentive to rob variety stores when you've got the alcohol right behind the, the glass there. And, and listen, we've seen this in action, and uh, we've talked to the, the convenience store operators of, of the province, and, and I've seen it, actually, and I'm sure you have, too, if you go to some of the smaller communities uh, in, in cottage country. Uh, the corner stores, there are, some of the variety stores actually sell liquor and beer already, uh, because there aren't too many LCBO stores in those particular areas. And I, I've seen it work very efficiently. You're right. They just move a, a great big uh, gate across there and say, okay, we're closed now or we're open or whatever the case might be. But it does raise some concerns about, uh, you know, that's that's once in a while you see a store like that in a town like Craigleith or, or, or uh, Mansbridge or some of these places up here. But in some of the other, now it's going to be at every corner. Uh, does that mean that everybody that works in a variety store now has to have a smart service certificate? Well, you would, you would think they would need something. If not smart serve, that's the pouring of alcohol, at least something that says they understand about the retail sales. We actually have an agency store in the greater Hamilton area, in the Rockton area. I've been to the Rockton Berry Farm, and it serves a number of campgrounds in the area. It's been a nice secondary revenue stream. And, and I think, a, and this is called an agency store, where they're not a complete LCBO or a complete uh, beer store outlet, but they, you know, they serve this as a sideline. I, I think the, the beer store itself was open to that kind of negotiation. Let's see how these first 350 go, and then let's take it farther, perhaps, in 2025. I just don't understand why we need to rip up the contract. This reminds me a bit of Donald Trump trying to erase everything that Obama did. I wonder if Doug Ford is on the same thing. Anything that Kathleen Wynne touched has to now be evil and be ripped up. 
I think it was actually working. And I'll also tell you, Bill, since beer and wine have come into grocery stores, it hasn't been an overwhelming success. In other words, yes, some people buy it there, but it's not been the big volume mover that I think many grocery stores thought it was going to be. So, you know, we need to maybe study this. I like the evolutionary approach. I'm just not sure why we need the revolutionary approach. Uh, uh, one quick question, because I want to get the finance minister going here in just a couple of minutes. Mr. Fidelli is going to join us. Uh, very quickly, in about 30 seconds or so, if they go through with this, and it seems as if this is what they want to do, what does this do to the beer store, that company, the beer store, that private entity? Yeah, so uh, I would think their their first attempt is going to be to continue to operate as usual, but I guarantee you in a 450 outlet there are some marginal places, and if they lost 20% of the volume, 30% of the volume, 40% of the volume, Uh, Some of those would not be profitable to operate. So I suspect there will be some job losses within the beer store. There would be some closures within the beer store. You can't just add 10,000 locations and not have the 450 you have now have some negative consequences. So it would be a balancing. To, To the point of I don't know whether the beer store would consider closing them all together if they have to support. Think of this from an efficiency standpoint, Bill. I have a truck that visits 450 outlets to fill them up with beer. Now I've got to do 10,000. Think what that means for their distribution costs. I can't help but think that's also going to see the price of beer go up as part of this. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Thanks as always, Marvin. We'll talk again soon. Glad to be here. Uh, On this same topic, though, we are pleased to welcome to the program uh, Vic Fidelli, the Ontario Minister of Finance, uh, who, of course, is in charge of this particular aspect of the, the policy. Mr. Minister, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you back on the show today. Great to chat with you, Bill. Thank you. Vic, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, costing, first of all. And, and I'll say, just in the interest of full disclosure, I, I don't have a problem with this uh, on, on the surface, but I'm concerned from what I'm hearing from others here about uh, some of the ramifications of this. And one of the first ones is, this is an existing contract. There's usually penalty clauses if you rip up a contract, isn't there? Well, uh, the interesting thing in, in our parliamentary system is that uh, the multinationals know that from one... Uh, uh, from one government to another, uh, our parliamentary system gives us the opportunity to legislate the end to these bad deals, and that is exactly what we will, uh, what we did put in the legislation. Was quite frankly, we're legislating the end of a bad deal, and and Bill, if we didn't do that, this unfair system that's in place today would continue for six more years. And, and that's the other element of this. I mean, because I've heard from especially crap breweries, which, of course, are very much in vogue these days. Uh, and, and this, as we mentioned, is a private entity. It's run essentially by these big three breweries. Very hard to get shelf space, very hard to get any kind of promotional activity going on there. So there, there's an element of fairness to this. But at the same time, if you legislate this, Vic, uh, you've got to still assume that the beer store is going to come back out legally and say, look, we're going to challenge this. Well, uh, that's the interesting part about our parliamentary system and the fact that we can legislate an end to bad deals. Bill, you made an interesting good point. Many people, in fact, probably most people in Ontario, would not know that the government does not own the beer store. We own the LCBO. The taxpayers uh, own the LCBO. We do not own the beer store. It is owned by three global beer multinationals. They've had this, uh, this near monopoly in place for almost a century. Uh, it's, uh, we had a special advisor that was hired uh, whose report that was released yesterday, and in it says, quote, it's a bad deal for Ontario. It stifles competition. It keeps prices artificially high and prevents new craft beer entrepreneurs from getting a, a foothold in the market. Nowhere else in the world 
does ag government give the biggest beer companies this kind of uh, sweetheart deal? I know this was very controversial when uh, then-Finance Minister uh, Dwight Duncan put this deal together some time ago, and, and there was a concern about, first of all, the length of it. Uh, and, and basically, I guess it was the basic, at that time, if I recall, and just doing this off the top of my head, it was to try to get a, 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 some sort of a commitment from the beer companies that they weren't going to raise the prices. Uh, and I don't see that that's working out too well either. So th- there's obviously a need to do something about this. But let, let's, let's talk about how this is going to roll out then. Uh, I would think that, obviously, as, and you've talked about this, and I know the Premier's talked about this, uh, convenience has got to be near the top of the list there is one of the reasons why for, for moving forward on this now. Yeah, but it's not just about beer and wine, and it's not just about choice and convenience. It's about creating fairness for the Ontario consumers. I mean, think about it. This is a terrible deal. It was a liberal sweetheart deal. You have to wonder, why are multinational corporations so opposed to us selling their beer in more stores, more grocery stores, more big box stores. That's how lucrative their sweetheart deal is. So lucrative they're fighting us to add their product in several thousand more stores. Is there any projection at this stage about uh, revenue for the the, the government at this? Uh, I mean, uh, is there anticipation that beer sales will actually increase if you make it more convenient? Well, it's interesting, the Retail Council of Canada, uh, they said that alcohol sales could result in 9,000 new jobs and add about $3.5 billion in, in uh, annual in GDP. So you've got small businesses, brewers, consumers, everybody standing uh, to benefit from an expanded market. Are those 9,000 net jobs? Because uh, as we've just talked about with our uh, business professor, uh, Marvin Ryder, uh, there are probably going to be some layoffs. I mean, let's face it, if the beer store is going to lose market share, uh, they're probably going to lose sales, and that's going to bring maybe even the closure of some stores. But it's interesting. He also, uh, if I'm correct, would have talked about the fact that distribution would now expand from their 450 stores to thousands of stores. You know, perhaps there's uh, opportunities there for for making up uh, for it in the apples instead of the oranges. I mean, the, the, this is a huge business opportunity for everybody, and we look forward to bringing, uh, the, you know, this competitiveness to all of Ontario with any partner that wants to uh, continue talking to us. Speaking of distribution costs, though, and, and again, that's something that's, uh, that one of the the, uh, the critics brought up about this, Vic, is, uh, look, at more stores means more traveling. That means more trucks going into different neighborhoods. That's going to increase uh, distribution costs, is it not? Well, think about in Quebec, if we were to have per capita, as many stores as Quebec has, I'm not suggesting we're going to open this many, but we would need 10,000 new locations just to be the same uh, per capita as Quebec, and their beer is 8.3% cheaper than us. So uh, it's telling you where the profits are. That's why the insiders will do and say anything to protect their turf. What's... uh is there anything to prevent the companies from raising the price of beer arbitrarily? Because I, I, well, I, I saw one report, and I'm sure you've seen this one too, a couple of years ago, when, when Alberta went through this process some years ago. Uh, there was actually an, an increase in the, peer, the price of beer in, the, in that province, and, and there's some concern that that same thing could happen here. Well, again, Quebec is doing it uh, with a price that's 8.3% lower than here, so they're doing something right uh, in that province when it comes to choice and convenience. So you're not worried about anything about that then? You, f- you feel that there's a, a better system in place? That, that was some years ago, of course, the Alberta situation, uh, Quebec more recently. So obviously they've ironed some of that stuff out. 
Well, I'm, uh, you know, the whole idea about uh, about bringing beer and wine and convenience stores and big box stores is choice and convenience. What about the common criticism, and this has been going on for years, before you guys even introduced this possibility of uh, legislation, there has been some concern raised by groups like Mothers Against Drunk Driving and even in some uh, police services about the impact that this could have. More accessibility means more drinking and driving, uh, the possibility of more fatalities, etc. How, how do you measure that and put that into the equation? Well, it's interesting. Our special advisor, <coughs> Ken Hughes, was also very heavily involved in uh, Alberta's health sector, uh, and he addresses this in his report. But again, he refers back to, or we refer back to Quebec with 10,000 more locations uh, with very little difference in any statistics uh, based in Ontario. But, you know, the safety of our people, um, we continue to work with the retailers and beverage alcohol manufacturers and public health experts that in, in, you know, basically to, to ensure that increasing convenience does not lead to increased social costs related to alcohol, much the way they've done it in Quebec. Vic, what about the staff members on these stores, whether it's a 7-Eleven or a Circle K or wherever this is going to be? Uh, do you have to have a smart serve? Do you have to have some sort of qualification to be able to well, sell beer? You know, there's going to be a lot uh, of training that will be required, of course, just like uh, the, the convenience stores excellent record of selling lottery tickets, selling cigarettes, uh, and other tobacco products. Uh, so, uh, you know, all of this involves uh, training and uh, safety and security. When do you see this rolling out? Obviously, you guys are heading for a summer break pretty soon. Are you going to try to get this done before you break for the summer? Oh, this will be done by the end of next week. We will legislate this, uh, pass the legislation. Should it pass, it'll be done by uh, the end of business on Thursday. Uh, busy day. I know you're doing a lot of interviews right across the province. Uh, Vic, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again Don't today. Go anytime. You know that. Take care. That's uh, Finance Minister Vic Fideli. Uh, with that commitment from the Ford government that they're going to get this done for this summer, uh, whether or not it's going to roll out, I guess there's obviously some, some wrinkles that have to be ironed out here about distribution and who's going to do what. But, uh, boy, they're sure moving ahead on this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, in a story that just will not go away, uh, the SNC-Lavalin fallout, of course, continues with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and uh, Jane Philpott yesterday. Now, these are the two ministers, of course, that have left the Trudeau caucus, left the government, and are now sitting as independents. And there's a great deal of speculation about what they're going to do with the Ontario, or with the federal election, rather, which is coming up this October. Well, yesterday... The two of them announced that they are going to run as independents in their respective writings. Smartest move they could have made? Let's uh, talk about this. And uh, so pleased to welcome back our good friend Charles Adler, the host of Charles Adler Tonight, which is heard on global radio stations right across this country. Charles, great to have you on the program again. Thanks for the time today. Thanks a lot, Bill. Let's let's talk a little bit about this decision, first of all, uh, and the ramifications of this. Now, we know that traditionally, Charles, uh, people who leave any government, whether it's federal uh, liberals, federal conservatives, whatever it might be, and sit as independents, uh, usually have a snowball's chance of getting reelected. Do you see that happening here? Uh, I think uh, Julie Wilson-Raybould has a, a chance of getting reelected. I think it's uh, no dice for, for Jane Philpott. I think if uh, you and I went to... Markham Stouffville and did a, a streeter and asked uh, folks who the local member of parliament is, you might get 30 or 40 percent uh, telling you that it's Jane Philpott. And uh, when, when that's your answer, that's your answer. People vote party, uh, they vote uh, leader, you know, who, who am I 
picking as prime minister, very few people vote based on the, the name on the ballot. And this isn't to hurt the egos of those people who are working hard and, and, and whose folks and, and friends and neighbors and are working hard to get them elected. But that's just not the way we vote in this country. We generally vote based on, on party. I think that about four out of five, especially when you're talking about people living in the cities and the and the suburbs of the cities. And in small towns, of course, everything's a little different because, hey, small towns are different. The uh, reality here, though, we seem to have short memories when it comes to politics in this country. Uh, the Liberal government, the Trudeau government itself, was, was elected by a, a Liberal wave that I don't think an awful, an awful lot of us saw coming in that last federal election. And, and I'm not suggesting that uh, that Wilson-Raybould and Phil Pot were just, you know, riding that crest of that wave. We don't know uh, but certainly they were re- elected in writings that probably were not perceived to be going liberal before that vote. Well, that's a, that, that writing has gone uh, both ways, of course. Uh, we're talking about uh, Markham Stouffville. Yeah. Vancouver Granville is a different animal. It's just a, it's a brand-new writing. But it was, uh, I, yeah, you'd say a liberal wave. I think it was an anti-Harper wave. And I think for the first time in about um, 10 years, liberals actually bothered to show up because about a million didn't. Uh, for Stefan Dion and about a, a million didn't for Michael Ignatieff. So it's true that uh, the, the Trudeau name and the Trudeau verve and style and uh, whatever whatever that charisma thing was, that did get traditional liberals to vote. And then, of course, it got a lot of NDPers uh, to vote as well. They wanted to vote Harper out, and so Trudeau was, was the horse that they rode. That, of course, that's not happening now. But then again... And in, in politics, there's always a then again, this is only May. The election is likely in October. Uh, sometime between May and October, many people will have to ask themselves the question, do they want the conservatives to return? And if we could just focus it a, a little bit, uh, I think the ballot issue in Ontario will be even uh, stronger. Do we want Ford's folks do we want Ford's federal brothers and sisters uh, to run the country? Do we want this country to be run by, by nothing but conservatives? And although that's something the liberals are, are hoping for, hoping that that'll put a, a pause on what's going on right now with uh, the liberals becoming rather de- deflated in the polls, I think it's a fair comment to make, especially in light of the the pushback that, that, that Ford is getting in Ontario. And if Ontario decides... Uh, that no, they they don't want uh, the federal conservatives in Ottawa. If Ontario makes that decision, that becomes the national decision. And, and it's fascinating. I know you've been talking about this on your program, Charles, and writing about it to, and, and blogging about this. Uh, about well, I, I don't want to use the phrase "fall from grace" necessarily, but this is a Ford government that seemed to be riding a crest of popularity. Uh, as you've seen, the latest polling last week indicates that they're in a three-way tie now with the the Liberals, who only have a handful of people in the legislature, and the NDP. Uh, and and you have to wonder about some of the strategy employed by Andrew Scheer in a situation like this, because he saw the popularity of that Ford government, and he he couldn't get close enough to Doug Ford, figuring some of that was going to rub off on him. Uh, he's got to be wondering just what he's going to do now. Well, you won't be able to separate the two, even if they're physically not together. The word conservative is conservative, and let's face it, a lot of the people who help uh, Doug Ford are the same people or friends of the same people. It's the same bunch now. In the last campaign, the conservatives were hoping that because uh, Trudeau's bunch uh, were similar to the people, and some of them were the same people uh, who had been helping Dalton McGinty and Kathleen Wynne, they were hoping that that would uh, make Ontarians pause and and not vote for for Trudeau. Uh, That didn't quite work out, but I think this one is a little different. 
And I think that uh, the, the the jury is in on, on Doug Ford. He's not seen as competent. And while competence is a big deal everywhere in the country, it's especially a big deal in Ontario. And, of course, to add insult to intelligence, it's not just competence now. It's also dishonesty. I've not seen... Uh, especially with with a majority government, I've not seen anyone falling from grace. Maybe not quite quite the term, but certainly falling in in, in popularity. I mean, it, it's only been a few months. I mean, some people in Ontario feel like he's been in for a few years, but the election is still fresh blood. Well, it's uh, less than well. The next month, I guess, is the anniversary, the one year anniversary of this, and and what a tumultuous eleven months it's been so far. Uh, and and again, I, I guess this is the price that Ontario voters pay when they basically say, "Look, we're so ticked off with the premier that we had that we'll take just about anything." So we, but we didn't we didn't do our diligence. We didn't do our homework about this, Charles. We didn't ask him what policies were. We didn't ask him about his his platform. And we simply said, "Look, let's just get that other person out and put this guy in here." And I I, I sense there's a lot of voter remorse right now. Well, I, I think that. Uh People felt that uh, the debt levels, the spending levels were absolutely absurd, and uh, they decided that no matter who won that uh, PC convention, uh, they were just going to be given a meat axe. And, uh, you know, that works in a cartoon, but but in in real life, uh, government, uh, when you you do cuts, you've, you've got to do them with a scalpel, not an axe. And uh, when you do the axe, uh, and you give anybody an axe and just three talking points, um, it's 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 going to hurt, especially if we're talking about cutting education and health care. I mean, that's that's cutting right into the bone. Well, and it's interesting because I know that during the campaign here in Ontario, uh, there were a number of analogies drawn, uh, obviously from liberals and NDPers. They were saying, look at you, elect a, a, a Doug Ford, you're going to get Stephen Harper all over again, which kind of brought us back to the, uh, the those 2005 election promises about how there were going to be you know, cuts like this and cuts like that. And, and we were all amazed to find out that once elected, Stephen Harper actually governed from the middle. The middle right, but middle nonetheless, because uh, for, for whatever faults you might think Stephen Harper had, he's a clever man and he understands that that's where Canadians basically want to see their, their government's form. Yeah, Har- Harper was creepy in many ways, uh, but, you know, and certainly the, the press felt that because Harper was absolutely paranoid uh, of the press. But as far as basic governance is concerned, he was pretty darn mainstream uh, Canadian. And, and if Stephen Harper had taken over at Queen's Park uh, 11 months ago, you wouldn't see the kind of headlines you'd see, you'd see now. Not because the media would be crazy about Stephen Harper. It's just that so many of the, the sort of the, the mistakes, so much of the, the blundering is something that Stephen Harper wouldn't have put up with. Because whatever you want to say about Stephen Harper, the guy was a pro. And whatever you want to say about Doug Ford, he ain't. And therein lies the problem. So is this going to be an impact? I mean, traditionally, Charles, we've seen in federal elections, uh, whatever might happen in the East Coast is is usually a, a, a precursor, but Quebec and Ontario seem to be the main battlegrounds, whoever wins those two provinces. And and we've seen this happen in the past. I know to the frustration of people in Western Canada, where for all intents and purposes, many times, the election's over before they, they start counting the votes west of Manitoba. Well, you know, Western Canada, of course... <laughs> Because the election, like everything else, is a TV show. So, yeah, certainly if the if the show's over, uh, you know, before you get to Kenora, uh, then uh, yeah, it can be frustrating. But 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 math is math, and uh, you know, two thirds two thirds of the country lives east of Kenora. I mean, you can't you can't change that overnight. 
Uh, we know what's going to happen in Alberta and Saskatchewan, obviously, with the election of those governments and, and Premier Kenny now. What's, give me a read, Charles, on what is happening in British Columbia, because we're getting mixed signals here that, that the, the Liberals have fallen from grace, uh, not just because of the, the Wilson-Raybould situation, but because of the pipeline or lack of pipeline. Uh, we hear they may be going forward on this, but I, I'm getting the sense uh, that the, the, the people in that province are pretty much split on this 50-50 about the pipeline. Well, yeah, they, they definitely split on the pipeline. The way it works is uh, the, the, the folks on Vancouver Island are, it would seem, at least the atmospherics, that uh, they're almost all uh, against uh, the pipeline. And then in, in, in Metro Vancouver, it's about 50-50. And then once you leave Metro Vancouver, once you go into the Fraser Valley, you're basically in Alberta. Uh, you're, you're in a part of the world where it's all about uh, resources and, and resource jobs, and they are very much uh, for the pipeline. That's the way B.C. works. As far as um, liberals, I mean, they've got a, a, a great big, you know, liberal, BC Liberal Caucus right now. Um, for that to be eviscerated, the Conservatives would have to be a lot more popular than they are, and uh, the NDP would also have to be much more popular. So I think the Liberals still have uh, a really uh, solid fortress Liberal uh, here in the in, in, in the Vancouver area. You know, this is where I live. I live in in, in North Vancouver, and uh, there's a, a Liberal. Uh, who's uh, RMP. Now, the colorful person who's running against him is Sven Robinson, who's known for a lot of things, mm-hmm. very loquacious, and he's very articulate, but he's best known for stealing a ring, or as the NDP liked to put it back then, he pocketed a <laughs> ring. Anyway, criminal is criminal. He did steal the ring, and he was convicted for that. Uh, so he's relatively controversial, and he's going to be the NDP standard bearer in the writing. Uh, but the conservative standard bearer is a social conservative, you know, social conservative past as far as LGBT issues, as far as abortion. So basically a blast from the past. The idea that uh, the writing I'm in is going to go for a, a social conservative, I mean, that's just, uh, you know, that's not happening. So I would say the liberal here has a good chance of, of winning again. And I think most liberals in the metro Vancouver area are fairly safe. And, of course, Jody Wilson-Raybould is also seen as a, a liberal, and, and that's why she's safe. I guess we'd call her, a, what, an independent liberal. Well, even if she is successful, and as we say, the, the, you know, history says that that doesn't happen that often. I can remember the case of uh, Helena Georges, of course, a couple of years ago, who was uh, representing the Collingwood Blue Mountain area up there. And uh, uh, she was, uh, of course, here and her husband were, were the party people, of course, and got booted out by Stephen Harper. She ran as an independent, and, I, I, and of course, it did not go well for her. And it's happened. Uh, John Nunziata, I think, did get reelected as an independent once, didn't he, Charles? John Nunziata had personality. Plus, yeah. Plus, plus. Which obviously the media didn't love John Nunziata. <laughs> he was he was a walking he was a walking talking point, wasn't he? He was a he was a sound bite with shoes. <laughs> <laughs> I miss, I can't remember if I ever agreed with him, but I don't care. I miss John Nunziata a lot. Well, we need more John, we need more John Nunziatas in in Parliament. It's not a place to go if you're looking for a lot of personality. It just isn't. A little inside baseball information here. Anytime that we as talk show hosts we're talking with our producers and said it's kind of a slow day. Well, get Nunziata on the phone. He's always got something Absolutely. to say. Absolutely. Yeah. And everyone had Nunziata on speed dial, and, <laughs> and Nunziata had everyone on everyone else on speed dial. I don't know if speed dial is a word we use anymore, but I think everyone knows what we're talking about. Where are those personalities now? I mean, everybody just, they're all ducks in a row now behind party leaders. We don't get that anymore. Well, the parties don't even try to recruit very many personalities because... 
you know, that's not what the leader's looking for. The leader's not looking for an argument. The leader's looking for a seal. And so it really doesn't matter whether we're talking about the, the Liberals or Conservatives or, or the NDP. Um, the personalities, uh, people who have um, a strong sense of who they are, uh, who don't constantly need uh, affirmation from, from a party or a movement, um, they're not. Uh, th- those folks, those self-confident folks, uh, and I'll throw in talented and, and brains and all the rest. They're not really looking to uh, uh, to politics to to make their mark. Uh, whether they're watching Question Period or just uh, following the daily news, I, I do think that most really smart, self confident people are not attracted to uh, to politics to to retail politics as we know it. Maybe you know some and you know locally uh, you know want to get something done locally, and so some might run for for mayor or, or, or council. But the idea that um, you're one of the people that I'm talking about wanting to sort of be inside some caucus of 100 or 120 um, and and go to Ottawa and basically live away from your family, it's not a life that that most people want. Well, and especially given the performance of people on both sides of the house over the last year, not just to do with the SNC-Lavalin, but so many other different things, I got to think that anybody who's going to be approached right now is going to have second thoughts and say, do I really want to jump into that cesspool? Well, it's a very it's a very hostile environment, and uh, you know many people, uh, despite uh, how much so- social media gets slagged, and I'm one of the slaggers, and probably you you are as well. Uh, you know, most people don't want to put themselves, and you know, if they've got families, they don't want to put their families in those crosshairs. Uh, it is very, uh, very ugly business, and you can go from. You know, the, the penthouse to the outhouse very, very quickly in politics. Charles, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Anytime, Bill. Take care. Charles Adler, of course, host of uh, Charles Adler Tonight, heard right across the network and right across this country on Global News. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.